0: I have with me today, Somik Raha. He wrote Invaluable, Achieving Clarity on Value. How are you doing
1: today? Doing good, Junius. Thank you for helping me with with this podcast.
0: Of course. Um, The first thing that uh, I have to say about this book is uh, I was really impressed with how relatable it is. Uh, You have all this expertise in your field as you broke down throughout the book. Um, but yet when I was reading it, I realized that anyone doesn't matter your background. It seems that they can pick up the concepts. They can relate to what you're writing. So that was very interesting to me. Um, but one thing that was especially interesting to me was your concept of counting. And we really get into, uh, the origins of counting and what counting exactly is in the context of your book. But um, for the listening audience, can you please give us a brief overview of, uh, of this concept?
1: Well, it's, uh, it, that, that's an interesting question because I got to tell you how many times people ask me, What do you mean by counting? I do mean that which we do every day. And when you count on your fingers, zero, one, two, three, that literally is the counting I have in mind and and it takes a while for people to appreciate that yes it's this fundamental construct that we use all the time that is second nature to us that is what my conversation is about yeah it's a, it's that thing that's everywhere <laughs> everywhere like, you know there's life cannot exist as we know it without counting and I, and i think that i think it's interesting that um you're bringing
0: it back to two people saying that you know, what you've been doing all along is exactly what I'm talking about, because it seems that when um, readers pick up a book in which they're trying to change their life or alter it for the better, they often think of uh, that it's very philosophical. It's very heady. It's, it, there has to be some concept that is beyond their grasp. And yet we're talking about something that you already know how to do. It's just perhaps altering the way you're thinking about it a little bit, which is great. Um, so when I was going through your book, I was making sure to highlight and take notes and everything. Cause I found uh, a lot of things very interesting. The first thing that really came out to me was on page seven. Uh, when you say, when you call a mound of clay, a pot, you're making a distinction on a mass of undifferentiated clay and labeling a particular shape a pot you're also reducing all other experiences in the universe to not pots now this really stood out to me because uh it it was almost like a um it reminded me of buddhism a little bit but um i know i know we don't talk too much about you know religion in your book and everything but uh, can you
1: what made you start out with this concept? So you so, said you know Buddhism comes from India and and it's uh, it's in a long uh, long lineage of, of philosophical tradition. The Indian philosophical tradition it's, uh, it, it's situated in the in the Hindu context. And a fundamental engagement in Hindu philosophy is with this idea called name and form, nama rupa. And, and the idea is that we have created the world through distinctions, that we, we, we have given a name to something we see, and now that name has taken on a life of its own. So that's that's been the foundational philosophy. And, and uh, by the way, I, I, uh, I have known it through Hindu philosophy, it's very ancient, and Buddhists very much are situated in that context coming, you know, at the tail end, in some sense, in the long arc of time. Right. But it's it by no means limited to Eastern philosophical systems. You will see this in the Western system as well. If you go to the last chapter, with the ending chapter, it connects with the beginning chapter where we, we talk about what the biblical ancients might have been thinking about when when they said, hey, don't eat into the fruit of knowledge. Well, what is the fruit of knowledge if it is not about distinctions? And it's saying that hey if you if you be careful, if you eat that fruit of knowledge, you're going to get into a lot of interesting situations. <laughs> that will take you away from what truly is. Right. Because reality is undifferentiated, like the clay. And, and, and an ancient, sh- you know, shepherd people, this is like the best metaphor they could employ to engage with what they were experiencing. So this is a pretty universal observation of any culture that's been around for a little bit of time to see what's going on. And, and that's what, I, you know, inspired me, like, hey, this is the humble Salt of the earth, metaphor, clay, right. and and look, the philosophy's there everywhere you look. So that that was the inspiration, yeah,
0: right. <laughs> and the reason I bring that up as well is because again, we're we're starting to almost get into a philosophy of sorts, but yet it, it actually is universal. It actually is something that applies to everyone. Um, when you know, I, I remember, you know, even for myself. When I, I, grew up, you know, in Western society, but then when I start to being introduced to concepts like that, it br- brought open my way of thinking. So exact, you know, someone showing me a table, like, you know, is that a tree? Like, well, no, that's a table. Like, well, it was once a tree, right? And it's like, well, yeah, like, well, when did it become a table? you know? (laughs) And, and I guess that same concept can be applied to the self. You know, if someone believes that they are unintelligent, for example, well, when did you become unintelligent? When did, when did you take on that label? When did that label define who you are in your mind and what will enable that label from change? Well, what will make that label change? So that's very interesting to me um and it kind of goes to uh an, another quote that i made sure to underline in the preface and we're only in the preface for anyone that's listening uh, on page nine you said how do we know that we are counting what truly counts this is about halfway down what about bias in our data if we are counting in a biased way our decisions will also be accordingly biased and so that was interesting to me because when we are talking about how we define ourselves, what is the data that informed that definition how do you know what is the what data is biased what data is not good data what is um a cog in the system that that enabled us to reach a negative way of thinking or a way of thinking that is not conducive to our full potential. Um, and is that something that you sort of had in mind when you were, you were, uh, thinking about like the bias in the data? Is that?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. If, if you look around you, you'll see that we are living in the age of data and we have created doctrines around data and it's uh, formally and professionally called data science. And, and it's a, it is very easy for people practicing this to say that if it's not in the data, it doesn't exist. It doesn't have validity. Right. And that is, uh, that is a very aggressive position to take. Uh, now, of course, great data scientists, good data scientists w- would be very careful before they say something like that because they're uh, trained to understand the bias. That what are you capturing that shapes the the frame, the context of your conclusions of your even the question you're asking mm-hmm. so so having that self-awareness is very important because the tools we're building are very very powerful they, they they go on autopilot so you press a button and it's like a magic genie has now gone and done a whole bunch of things and if you're not looking carefully, you you might be autopiloted into a world that you do not like very much. So, you know, it's a, nowadays, of course, it's the ex, uh, explosion of interest in all of this has come through with ChatGPT, which is an amazing, amazing advancement with large language models. But there, is there no bias in that? And people have seen the earlier versions of it, where it's easy to trick trick the bot and make it say egregious things. And and even now, like you know, it's not that, that difficult to break it down and, and see that it's bluffing. So it's uh, it, it's one of those things where if you're not if you don't know how this is getting put together, it, it can lead to very dangerous conclusions. And so it is a responsibility for people building with these technologies to think about ethics, think about values, mm. and think about what's not in the data, what is real. And how do you make decisions that are consistent with things that are real? Because data, ultimately, if you think about it, is it real? Like If you ask a child, hey, what's more real, numbers on a computer or the love you get from your mom? Mm. And guess what the child will say? And people say, oh, love is intangible. No, it's actually the only thing that's tangible. You can feel it. But can you feel numbers? Mm. So these are all things that we uh, take for granted. But in fact, if we were to reflect... Our conclusions would arrive uh, totally opposite to what the autopilot conclusions t- take us toward. Right,
0: and and I think um, you know that really brings me back to the concept of counting because you know with counting you know one two three four there is a, there's a pattern there's a there's an almost simple way of looking at things that we end up making far more complicated than it really is. When you were talking, you made me think of social media, for example, how that is very prominent in our lives and how people will use something like getting likes on Facebook and use that as a form of validation where it's like, you know, is that actually real? Are those likes real? what do you base your future actions upon getting those likes? You know, what is actually reality and what is not? Um, it made me think of on page 10 at the top of the page where you said living here and seeing the deer go by reminds me how disconnected we have become from reality and how we have constructed our lives around things that don't really exist. So, you know, that, that it it is concerning because we are in an unprecedented age with social media, with the rise of AI, with all of this technological advancement that's coming really fast, where we as human beings have to adapt to this, but we almost don't have time to adapt. <laughs> and so we are forced to just kind of deal with what's coming out of the other side without being able to take a step back and take our time. One, two, three, four, you know, and so on. Um, so do you, before we, um, go a little further, is there anything that you wanted to say when it come, um, comes to social media or the reality, uh, that people are facing nowadays?
1: Well, a lot of people have very extreme opinions about social media and, and it definitely has, uh, and there are good reasons for it. So, all I'll say is, I recognize that a great benefit has come from it. People have been connected in ways that were, was not possible earlier. And also, great harm has resulted from it. And, and that is another, that is a shadow side of anything that's good. So, it's important for us to recognize the, the full picture. And my position ultimately, the identity, the the name and form that I'm coming you know, in, into this world is, is as a creator, as an engineer. Mm-hmm. So an engineer's job is a little bit different from a social scientist. A social scientist can sit back, relax, take a cup of coffee or tea and say, look, those engineers out there build something that sucks. And and that's it, their job is done by throwing a lot of criticism. And, and well-founded criticism, no question about it, they, they'll help us understand. What we missed. So kudos to social scientists for doing that. The bar for an engineer is a lot higher. The engineer has to listen to that criticism and produce something better. And so I have more empathy. I I have great respect for social science, and I have studied, uh, you know, taken some training in those methods. But that's not the ending point. That's a that's a requirement. We that's table stakes for our engineers today. We have to understand social science. We have, we must make an investment in ethics and understand our values. And we we must leave the world better than we found it. That is the bar that inspires me. So so I, I'm I'm okay with people trying in good faith and then making mistakes and and then getting up and saying, Yeah, okay, you know, I'm all muddied up, but I'm gonna wash up and try this again because I accept the criticism and the only thing in my nature is to build so i want to try and build a little bit better right so i'm not looking for perfect clean human beings i'm looking at people like myself who have a lot of flaws and yet have some purity of intent some purity of intention and they they want to try again they want to build something better than they built last time right so those are the people that I'm. I'm speaking to. That yes, you want to build. I I want to support you, and let's let's recognize the criticism that's coming our way. Let's embrace it, and now here are ways to go a lot deeper than the service level criticism. Here are ways to connect with who we want to be in this world, and and let's see what emerges from that. That's the that's the lens that I'm taking. Mm.
0: Right, and that. And in order to to do that, we have to realize that, you know, um, human beings are very uh, different. We have to realize that we all have different ways of reaching similar conclusions in order to take those criticisms and produce not just something new on an engineering level, but even when it comes to the self, we have to realize how we all learn, how we all, um, you know differentiate our ways of conceptualizing so for example on uh, page 11 um, as a teacher this stood out to me as a former teacher uh, halfway through it says let's look at what is considered innovative in present-day education there's a big attempt to personalize education and a recognition that different children learn differently however there is very little realization that the personalization is in service of eventually arriving at a uniform child. You may take your own unique path, but ultimately you will be indistinguishable from other children at the end of your journey. And so, you know, as a former teacher, that particularly reached out to me because um you would think that <laughs> you would think that it would be common knowledge that everyone realized that, you know, just like with machines, uh people are different everyone has different experiences even if you grew up in the same state uh in the united states or the same country same town even if you have the same parents siblings are different everyone has a different way of of looking at the world even though they are taught the exact same concepts as a parent myself you know i i have three children for example i will teach each of my children, the same concept. It is coming from me. They are all hearing the same things, and yet they are all receiving it differently, (laughs) even though my tone has not changed. The message has not changed. And so when we are talking about improving the self, that's why it is so important to, just like the social scientists uh, criticizing the You know the machines and 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 different things that you try to do as an engineer it's important to also take a look at ourselves and again going back to the data concept looking at that bias looking at where the data is coming from look at where we're receiving the messages and evaluating each piece so that we can arrive at our full potential um you said right after this is a huge human tragedy and it crushes our individual souls that each hold a unique song. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, uh, that human tragedy that crushes our individual souls and, uh, that unique song. Like where, where did that come from?
1: You know, yeah, just yesterday I was talking to one of my, uh, uh, friends, really good friends. He, uh, in a past life, he was a founder of a startup. And we've been friends since. And we were talking about this very point, and he was telling me that somebody asked him, "How many people do you think are doing work that they they don't come alive in? That they're just doing as a job? It's a total mismatch, but they've given up." And he put that number in America at ninety percent, and then he said, "No, ninety percent is an underestimate." So he revised it to ninety-five. And he some more. he said, no, I don't think it's 95 either. It's, I think it's 99%. <laughs> okay. Right. So th- this is, this is, uh, this is the, the situation that we see. This is a, and, um, I, I have to say that I, uh, I agree, you know, it's a, you know, look around you, look around you, how many people are living in fear and the biggest fear I mean, people have all kinds of fears. What do you fear? That I won't be able to provide for the people I love. I won't be able to hold on to my job. And I won't be able to make people feel like they've made the right decision hiring me. So these are all fears. layers upon layers upon layers of fear. And of course, there's the ultimate fear, which is the fear of death. That, hey, I have only limited time. Oh, oh what am I going to do? I want to live. Not. So people make decisions driven by fear all the time. And what if you didn't? What if you instead said, I'm going to play a long shot game. I'm going to go towards my values and see where that takes me. That requires a a, a, a a big leap of faith in a sense, a lot of courage. And it doesn't come easy. right? I've gone through experiences in my life where you know, I had to learn the hard way that I'm not alive because of a salary. I'm alive because... Of breath, I'm alive because I'm able to connect the so-called five elements and keep it in balance. Otherwise, I'd be dead. Right. Those are things that keep me alive. Food, food is helpful, yes, and it doesn't take that much. You know, it's <laughs> a, it's the the mind creates such a drama around what it takes to be alive that we significantly harm our mental and physical well-being with fear significantly and we make decisions that guarantee uh, continued frustration continued uh, sorrow continued hopelessness and and it's 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 soul-crushing and 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 then you look at people who don't do that we call them rebels we we see them as exceptions that's the other tragedy why are they exceptions why is that not the norm and what have we done with our education system where everybody has to fight a massive uh, current going the other way in order to do something that makes sense to them? So so that's that's what I'm talking about. That, uh, And I have two kids too. Uh, so, so as we go through the schooling system, I've had some time to engage with these questions. Well, is private school better? Is public school better? And what are they all trying to do? mean that's where these observations come from, that, a, hey, are they trying to make a uniform child, or are they trying to uniquely understand this child, who this child wants to be, nurture? And there are strong opinions, by the way, amongst educators, some feel everybody should have a common basis of uh, foundation, and it's not the job of the education system to identify your uniqueness. So I understand that point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say that you should figure that out. Once you have the common basis, you can go anywhere you want. But what actually happens is, people somewhere along that common foundation think they are that foundation and not anything beyond it, and and that's uh, that's tragic. That's really tragic, because I feel I feel inspired you know when when you see breakouts, people who have not tried the Kool Aid completely, and I who feel like no, I here's my uniqueness, and if not anybody else, this is the hill I'll die on they become a refreshing breath of fresh air. You know, they they not only survive, they thrive, provided the society around them understands it and values it. <laughs> right. But but if they even if they you know society doesn't, they may not you know, that's why there is a warning in the back of my book. This book is dangerous. You might stop comparing yourself to others. Financial wealth may no longer be a primary marker of success. You might count value very differently. You might even enjoy a work. That's what I believe can't happen. That's the potential that I'm speaking to mm. and I, and I think that's very important to to
0: talk about because when um i I remember uh, not too long ago, um, I don't have the exact uh, you know link in front of me or or anything, but basically uh, they took a bunch of uh, hospice nurses and doctors, and they there was a study done in which they compiled. A bunch of data of what people said on their deathbed uh and they basically came up with five things that people regretted on their deathbed and you know some of them were i wish i had lived the life that i wanted to live or i wish i had spent more time with family and friends i wish i had not worked so much And when I read that list, there, there were two more, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. But the, the, when I read that list, I was like, wow. Okay. So here's data before me of people that have lived these long, full lives. Like they did not die in a tragic accident. These are people that are in hospice. They're at the end of a long life and the commonality are these regrets. So who am I to think that I'm so special that I would not have the same regrets if I didn't make some significant changes in my own life? I did not evaluate myself in what can I do to prevent me from having those same regrets. What value, what do I value to prevent me having those regrets? Um, So that was very fascinating to me. And uh, at the end of page 11, uh, it says, The hope is that if we can redefine our metrics to incorporate our spirit, then we will deepen our relationship with ourselves through our engagement with metrics and will ultimately heal our relationship with the rest of the world. It seems like there's this battle between self and what the world wants us to be. And it seems just like you were talking with your friend about 99% of people uh you know not in a ideal situation i mean the proof seems to be right there when people at the end of their lives are saying here are my regrets um what do you what do you what do you think about um hearing about some of those those unfortunate regrets that uh
1: people have had at the end of their life Well, so, I for one don't want to be one of them.
0: <laughs> no, me neither. It's yeah, it, me neither. it's like
1: okay, we, let me challenge some of my assumptions and see what what. It, it's very empowering to do that. It's like what what would I regret, and I can tell you, like I'm I'm not written anything in the book that I have not followed. I'm not doing anything that I regret. That's mm-hmm. if a human being can just say that at, at any point of their life. It's a blessed life. Okay. I I'm not. I'm not a millionaire. I'm not, you know, financially what people would call rich. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, you know, carefree or anything. I have all the responsibilities of a householder, and I have no regrets. I really enjoy everything that's uh, in front of me right now. Every every little bit of it, and if whatever I don't enjoy. Uh, won't be that way very long. Things <laughs> will change. Either my internal attitude will change or something, whatever I can change externally will change. But, but that idea that, um, you're helpless is something that I just wish would disappear from the world. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, we are far more powerful than we give ourselves credit for. Yes. And, and, and I say this not in judgment, but in total humility that. I've gone through those periods of helplessness feeling, oh my God, I'm stuck and just realized I'm like the proverbial frog in the well who doesn't know any world outside of the well and suddenly you jump out and see, oh, there is a whole world beyond what I was conceiving. Mm-hmm. And that world is beautiful and now I have a bigger well to play in and then that well has its own limits and so on so, and so you go through life but it's 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 really interesting to identify the edges of your assumptions and say, "Oh, I've created a a cage for myself that I need to break out of and and it's a, it's I invite people listeners to think about what what cages they are in and
2: and what happens if they take a few steps becoming uncomfortable, leaving that cage right. So it's, uh, and 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 it's a tricky one, you know, to say that. So I have to say it with responsibility because I do say in my book, my hero is, uh, I have deep regard. I, I grew up with monks, people who leave their station in life and take another station, deepest regard for them. But that's not what this book is about. Those are not the heroes you're going to read about in the book. What you will read about is uh, folks who are in their station and and come alive in it they 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 have not given up the messiness of our crazy world they are in that messiness but they are blooming like a lotus so so that that all that means that yes you're breaking the cage but the cage is not necessarily outside most in fact most of the time it's an internal mental cage mm-hmm. and when you break that suddenly Nothing outside seems to have changed, but the way you relate to it can totally transform. And now you're creating beauty at every step. What other people see as mundane, you see as magical. And, and it truly really feels magical. I'm not making it up. It's like, wow, what, what a privilege to be able to create, to be able to live with truth and with freedom and with clarity. That's, uh, that's what a creator's life is. And everybody, every one of us is that creator, you know, until we are hammered into uh, consistency with some artificial norms. We all have that theater spirit in us. Right. And that's that's what I want to bat for. That's that's what I want to amplify and hope everybody gets to experience it.
0: Right. I I love the 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 I love when you brought up the cages. Um you know, sometimes I'll think about how like it seems that people are able to adapt to pain so well. It's almost like this is the pain that I know. So I'm going to stay in it, but why don't we adapt to joy and happiness and peace? And, and why don't we put ourselves in situations in which, you know, we, it's, it might be a little scary, might, might be a little anxious, but it could ultimately bring us more joy in our lives might feel more passionate. Um And sometimes I'll, be something that we did not think of for example um i'm not sure if i want to read the whole thing but on page 14 the, the end it says uh <laughs> you were telling a story uh and um i really like this story um about um anyways it, it basically you were in japan and you say the day before the exam my roommate in our tokyo apartment looked at the calendar in his room and pointed out hey so we, look This calendar shows your exam is on Sunday and not Saturday. Indeed, it did. It didn't occur to me to examine the calendar more deeply, and I ended up enjoying Saturday with friends. When Sunday came, I showed up at the examination center only to find every room completely and solidly locked with not a person in sight. Confused, I came back home and examined the calendar and found that it was the previous year's calendar. We hadn't changed it and hadn't ever used it, except on this pivotal occasion in my life, of course. (laughs) That's how (laughs) life goes. The schools refused to wait for my scores as they had their timelines. My opportunity was over for that year. Now, what felt at the time like a bummer turned out to be the best thing to have happened to me. I I love not only that story, but I love especially that last line there, because we are comfortable in our cages. We're, we're in this cage. We might not be happy with the cage. We may not even know it's a cage. But we're comfortable in our cage. And suddenly someone opens the cage and they're like, <laughs> why don't you step out into this unfamiliar world or this unfamiliar situation? And we're like, no, but this cage is familiar it's nice it's i'm used to this cage i'd rather stay in this cage but then we might be forced out of the cage and we find out that there is more to life than we ever realized for what was a bummer for you turned out to be the best thing to have happened to you that that's beautiful and i i think it kind of goes also back to uh when you're talking about the 99 of people (laughs) That they might be working these dead end jobs that they're not happy in, they're they're in a cage and they're used to the cage. They can't imagine stepping out into you know what I always wanted to be a marine biologist, or I always wanted to be a painter. They can't imagine it. They've been doing they've been in their cage for ten plus years or so or over that they're used to it. But uh, I w- I would love to hear more about. Uh, just taking a negative situation and turning it into a wonderful thing and just whatever is on your mind, I would love to hear more about that.
2: So, you know, that's interesting when people see these events in life as a negative situation, right? That almost sets a certain certain things in motion. And, and when this happened all those years back, it, it was pretty clear to me that I still love my friend and that relationship was more important than you know, a silly mistake like this. So, so that was uh, that. My values are pretty clear about that. That yeah, it's a bummer, but hey, we're still friends and really good friends at that. And 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 if, as you if you read on through that story, that same friend uh, told me about the the next opening, which was at Stanford's Management Science and Engineering program. And I think he was feeling bad all those years of, in the, in between that this had happened, and I had forgotten it. I I just enjoyed our friendship, and he when he shared that, and then I applied and I got in. I think a burden lifted off his heart, and and that's just how these things go. You know, people, if if you optimize for love and friendship, in the long run, you 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 get a lot more than looking at these specific moments. Where, life throws you a curveball, So, so you, you miss what, what you have when, you know, I use the term rich. I'm very rich in love that I have, you know, from friends and family and, and that's real richness. That's, uh, you know, people who care about you. I can't tell you how rare it has become now in our world to have people who really care about you. So, so that's what I would say that, Hey, things happen and you know things go off and you know sometimes we obvious humans we do <laughs> make strange turns and strange mistakes but let's not lose sight of that which is real for us and what is real for us is usually things like love things like friendship things like you know enjoying um, enjoying the small things in life when your child says something um really silly and goofy, you know, those are priceless moments. Those are like, you know, and, and as parents, you will know this, we replay those things that they quickly outgrow, by the way, the kids are very smart. They know that parents are having a good time laughing about what I said. So I'm not going to say it again, but then you miss it. It's like, Oh my God, they grew up. They just stopped saying that cute little thing they used to say. So, so there's a lot. to, you know, and, and that's a mistake, right? When the kid's saying something the wrong way. We don't say, Hey, that's bad. They made a mistake. No, he say how cute. And what if we took that attitude to the rest of our lives? That oh, something really strange happened here, and okay, how interesting. Instead, we we become victims. We we wallow in self pity and think, why me? Why oh, you know what what has happened and and then our life kind of gets defined around that victimhood, and and that's certainly one way to be, but is that the way we want? So these are questions. These are all questions that, uh, and I think it's a process. It's not that if something nasty were to happen to me, someone were to be mean to me. I probably would be pretty bummed about it. So it's not the case that I'm you know, always going to say, oh, how wonderful, somebody is being a jerk to me. No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, These things take time to process. And my hope is that if you're mindful, we will see a bigger picture than the one that's right in front of us.
0: Right. For me, it, uh, it kind of goes back to the hero's journey. Um, you know, typically in, in literature and many stories, uh, basically from the, since human beings were telling stories, there's always a the story of usually a young person, you know, they're at their, they're in their village, they're in their home, they're, they're, they're in a comfortable, nice area, whatever that they grew up in and tragedy strikes or something external strikes that forces them to go upon this journey of self discovery and growth and you know along this journey the, the because it's a hero's journey it's not they're a hero because they're already a hero it's because they're they're on the journey of becoming a quote unquote hero they are it's not about i i i worked out and i gained muscle it's about i overcame my anxiousness i overcame my cowardice i overcame these things that are holding me back and i'm becoming a stronger person on the inside and i am adapting to the situation around me and it's really fascinating how you know those are the heroes like no one no one calls the hero's journey the end it's always the the journey the it's the not the destination it is the journey And so, you know, in a lot of those stories, it is someone that is forced out of their comfort zone. But we also, you know, but one big thing about this book is it is inspiring people to force themselves out of the comfort zone. So, which is a little bit different. Um, Because obviously, again, I keep going back to what your friend said about the 99% (laughs) because I love that so much. But um if, 99, if about 99% of people are not in ideal situations, obviously they're not on an external hero's journey. There's not something that is forcing them to go on their hero's journey. So in other words, what, why this book is so great is because it is essentially trying to persuade you, hey, let's go on your hero's journey. Let's figure out what you value so that you may have a more fulfilling, satisfying life of your own volition. And I think that there's one quote in here on page 16 toward the end that kind of gets that that internal hero's journey started where it says, you cannot judge the quality of a decision from the quality of the outcome. So some people might think about starting their hero's journey and be like, okay, so nothing's forcing me to make a decision. That means I have to force it. But what if I make the wrong decision? And it might not be something as simple as right and wrong. But basically, I would love to hear more about this quote. You cannot judge the quality of a decision from the quality of the outcome. What would you say to people that are afraid of starting their journey into finding value, into
2: counting, um, but they're afraid. Yeah, no, Julius, thank you for picking that one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a yeah. For those who are listening, although uh, Julius is helping me with the podcast, uh, they, these are not preset questions. We decided to have it be spontaneous, and and this is a great one that you picked, and and it's it's uh, it's a theme that runs through the book. Because one of the many identities that uh, I, I like uh, is is one of uh, being a decision analyst, and uh, and and that has been a big part of my my professional work. So, the foundational principle of decision analysis is you cannot judge a decision from the outcome. But guess what we all do? If you if you're looking to get your next promotion, guess what has to be in your performance report? It has to be what outcomes did you deliver? And, and so this is a very strange and upside down world where it's very hard to get reward, you know, to create a context where people are rewarded for making great decisions, not producing great outcomes, because producing great outcomes gives too much credit to the individual decision maker. There's so many things that have to happen. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example that might, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, if you think about the success that Martin Luther King had, it's like one narrative is, wow, what an amazing leader, right? With that vision, clarity of thought and purpose, galvanized people. But then you look around him and you will see there are millions of people who allowed themselves to be galvanized, who felt that they needed to support the movement that he was sparking. And so was it because of M. L. K. himself, that the movement took off, or was it because of the million people who decided they wanted to go on this journey? And so, if you look at the outcome, you cannot don't see that so many people were a part of it, and and yet that doesn't take away from the from the the heroism of Doctor King, and 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 such is life that whatever good outcomes you have, it's very difficult to say. Oh, it's for this person and this reason that we got the outcome right it's It's just and, and you may think you get it, but there's always somebody smarter in the room who will say, "Oh, you missed that other piece, you missed this piece. There are like a million variables interacting so So you can play that game all day long, but a better game is, I give up, you know, I can't tell you how this outcome happened, but I do know what are the principles of good decision making and and I will focus on that and And that is a fundamental frame in this book. um that's also my get out of jail free card in a sense that hey <laughs> don't read this book, you know it's I have told I'm telling the reader don't don't buy this, you know this is a very dangerous book because if you crash and burn, I'm gonna hide behind I hope you made a good decision. <laughs> the outcome was bad so <laughs> but but I do mean it, you know it's a life's like that right life is not quote unquote fair. Bad things happen to good people all the time, right? And there is no guarantee that I will see the sun tomorrow morning when I wake up. And I don't want to live in a way where I need that guarantee. I don't need that guarantee to be who I am today right now. And what if he lived in that way? What if he lived without asking for guarantees, right? If MLK needed that guarantee that he'd be alive, he'd probably never get the movement started. But he did not live in that way, right? Right and a lot of our leaders they they took on great personal risk because there was something within them that uh, you know strangling that voice was a bigger death than any external death so so that is a that is something every every human being contends with that what is that voice that you you can't live on and ignore that voice that's getting ever louder saying that's not your path this other thing, this is the way, even though it's strange, unfamiliar, not well lit, feels dangerous, but that's where you're called to go. Don't suffocate that voice. Take that first step. See what happens. Is it really that bad? And, and, and at least for, for me personally, I, I had to overcome so many fears. And every time I took one step, even if that, you know, it's in this story itself that you're pointing, you know, that you're in right now you know the presentation that just crashed and burned was sort of the worst talks i've ever given in my life and yet for 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 a professor who who met me and got me started that was the one talk that really you know she, she remembered and and that was something like that was a lesson for me that it's not the entertainment i provide to others there is something intrinsic about the message that's universal it's not about me it's the message and even if i fail in fully respecting and bringing it out in its total glory, it's something in it, which will transmit because it's the message. We're all drinking from the same pool. So let me stop there.
0: <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, the, the, those are, those were all excellent, excellent points. Um, you know, even when they, uh, if you read a, a lot of books talking about, um, like building a business or, even how to live your life, like, okay, so I'm in my 20s, what should I do in my 20s uh, to uh, build a life of success? And a lot of books and mentors will say, fail, make mistakes, fail fast to success. That, like, they're like, listen, you're going to make mistakes. It's inevitable. And they're, they're going to they're gonna feel horrible. You're going to feel down. But the faster you make those mistakes, the more you'll learn, the more you'll grow uh, and you'll get to success even quicker. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, just taking those first steps as you were saying. And, you know, let's just get the failure out the way. And that's that's a whole different thing. Like we talk about, you were talking about Martin Luther King Jr. Do you, I mean, do you think that If he, do you think he started out as someone that could speak very well, becoming a great orator? No, there are a chance that if there was some kind of footage of his first time speaking before audience, he's probably a nervous wreck, probably stumbled over his words, probably said some things that weren't inspiring at all. I'm sure there were people even in the audience that were like, "Yeah, this guy isn't it," (laughs) but yet the more you do something the more you're likely to succeed as long as you don't give up. You miss 100% of the chances that you do not take. There's also the story of the Beatles. The Beatles, whether you like them as a band or not, um, their story goes basically how they became so good at what they did is there was, and I'm I'm shortening the story, obviously, but basically they were at this uh, like club like you know they were like a band in which they can play for the owner and everything and they were terrible but they were they were god awful but the the owner basically let them play as much as they wanted and uh they were gaining exposure even though they weren't really getting paid for it so they just kept playing and playing and playing and playing and eventually they started getting good eventually they started getting more audiences and people spreading by word of mouth like hey these guys are pretty decent those people that saw them in the beginning they probably never came back or they were probably converted later on like hey have you heard of the Beatles? or you know these guys are pretty oh i saw them like two years ago they're god awful i'm telling you check them out one more time you know and so that might be you that might be you even though right now it may seem scary to take those first steps out into the abyss uh fail fast to success um you know I, I i it will be great it will be great for you um and so
2: um another thing um have you have you heard of uh that fail fast to success before yes uh i think that's been around and, and at the, at the same time, I will, uh, I'll also add a little caveat that that principle is, it should be combined with what feels authentic to you. So sometimes, you know, you know, we are all different people. All five fingers in our hand are different sizes. Sometimes people will say, Oh, you should go try this, go try that. And, and the question comes, well, how do you know that's not for me that I shouldn't even try it? And the test I have is, does it feel like it violates your values and if it does don't try to fail fast there that you just don't even get started but if it doesn't violate your values then you should definitely make yourself uncomfortable and and try failing fast there so that's an important yardstick that will protect people that is this a violation of your values to try something outrageous <laughs> like whatever that is and if not uh, probably go try it you know be safe and but uh, you know do your thinking don't, don't be stupid um, you know, I, I, I was listening to, um, this action hero, um, who, who was asked, Oh, you must be brave. I said, no, 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 I'm not brave. I'm just, you know, I'm confident because I've practiced so much. I know what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not throwing my life away. And if you look at mountain climbers who do very crazy things, like, um, you know, solo climbs, they will say things like, oh, no, I'm not reckless with my life. I'm also scared to die and, uh, you know, I will practice. And when, when people see the final thing at the end of 10,000 hours, they're seeing what seems very scary to them, but I know what I'm doing. I've, I've, I put in the, the, the 50 pushups there. So, so the, the fail fasting has to be, uh, combined with an evaluation of your values that, Hey, if your, if your values are not being violated, then that's fine, but, but have a little layer of protection in there.
0: And I'm so glad that you brought that up because that brings me uh, about halfway through page 17, actually. in um, the second paragraph, about halfway through, where it says, I used ethnographic fieldwork as my research method, a philosophical discipline that requires building a skill set of understanding people the way they want to be understood. You know, everyone is different brings different things to the table. Some people are agreeable. Some people are more conscientious. um, Some people are more risk takers and some are not so. But yet everyone has their different value system and their different uh, skill sets and talents and things that they bring to the table, whether it's socially or maybe you have a great uh, work ethic or you're a hustler. You're uh, very uh, great with people. And those are things that you know seem to come out um in one way or another that people can kind of see almost like the breadcrumbs of uh what kind of path they may want to take um i really like this um as that you mentioned this as well understanding people they wa- the way they want to be understood um it brought me back to uh psychology in a lot of ways um and again how we process the world and so again this is why this book is very important because it's not only about um, asking you to evaluate your life, but it's also asking you to evaluate um, yourself and on a very deep level to understand even the way you understand the world. How do you process uh, the world? Um, I would love even to hear like an example of maybe you personally of how you process um, things that might be different than say your colleagues and how that may have either been beneficial or detrimental in some example. I don't know if you have any
2: anecdotes of that nature. So, so generally that comes, that ties into what, what later in the book you see called as the superpower, the habit. And the habit is your biggest strength. It's, it's a superpower, it's also your biggest curse. Because you can't stop it. And, and any good superhero movie these days, you will see the shadow side of the hero. And, and, and that is important to recognize. So mine definitely is that I'm, I'm, I'm a total optimist. So I will see the positive, uh, and probably downplay the risk that exists in the situation. Uh, and, and generally I like to see, I like to see the positive, the the possibility in the situation. I, I live in possibility. I'm a very strong possibilities person. Now that that can sometimes drain other people if they are the ones getting things done and you're behind on a deadline and you have a possibilities thinker coming in saying, Hey, what about we do this? What about we do that? And you know, it's like maybe you should be the one doing it, <laughs> that talk. So so I've, I've become aware uh, as I get older, I get more and more aware of that. And then just having empathy for different styles in the conversation where people, uh, you know, you know, just, just getting attuned to where people are emotionally. If they are drained, if they are just, you know, hurting, if they are stressed out, tired, is not the best time to share your sweet little idea. No, give them space and check, check in, check in on whether they're res- ready to receive the idea, so that has become more important as I've grown older. To see that, hey, it's it's an act of caring to to listen to the space before you speak. So that's uh, that's something, but that definitely is uh, is one of the <laughs> um, one of the edges I have in my, in my lens. And hey, why not we do it all? Like you know, this is cool, that is cool. Let's just get it all done. Why not? Uh, in the process, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why this book has taken so long, I could have gotten this book out a lot earlier, but every time I look at it, I can't bear to see it. Oh, look, there's a typo there, there You know, there's no artwork, let's get some artwork. It's, it, you know, the possibilities are immense, and and I want those possibilities in the book. Why not? And, and I'm in no rush, in, in this case at least, because the human race doesn't seem to be figuring its problems out and saying, oh, I'm out of a job. I don't need this book anymore. I wish that would have happen, by the way. But it doesn't seem like the world is going in that direction. If anything, uh, I'm hearing that more and more people are finding themselves um, soul-searching for what they should do next with uh, the layoffs that you're hearing about now in large organizations. And also in general, the, the meaning, the meaningfulness of work is probably the biggest question of our time: Am I doing something that feels meaningful to me? And and you can only go so far with external validation of people saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's so meaningful." How do people feel and know that it is truly meaningful to them? That's uh, that's the key question. So, and, and I also say that the the ethnographic thing that you called out again is a really good call out. I'm very grateful to those teachers of mine, uh, you know, it's like at Stanford. Those are the two big uh, takeaways from you know through Professor Ron Howard with decision analysis and Jennifer Wolf and Stephen Barley with with ethnography, ethnographic field work, and I remember going back to Stephen Barley later on after I was done with my PhD. That hey, and after I was done writing the book uh, quite a bit, at least I don't know maybe one of the six iterations, and I told him, you know, Steve, I, I realized I, I didn't really stop doing ethnographic fieldwork, like this lens of helping me understand people the way they want to be understood, that takes some hard work. And this discipline is more than just something you do academically. And and I must say that, you know, what breaks my heart is there's another discipline. uh, It's like the shadow discipline of ethnography. It's called critical ethnography. And this is where they take those same tools, but they take it to... um, I don't know if I'm misunderstanding it, or they they take it to beat people with a stick, like they like say, so, uh, with social activism. And the moment you become a social activist, while I have uh, I have a lot of regard for them, something in it feels like you know now you're no longer understanding people the way they want to be understood. Now you're labeling people in some ways and creating certain experiences through those labels. Where so if you if you were to Tell them that this is where i've i've uh, uh, this is the judgment I have on you, would they agree with that? whereas right. there's something very pure about ethnographic field work that I'm not making a judgment yeah, by the way it's like a lot of people have spoken to and helped clarify their values. those are not my values right? I would not walk on that journey that's not my journey but if I suspend my judgment and truly understand. And and I do have uh, that intent that there is something sacred in here for them. Okay, there's something really special. I, I am taking that position that what if that were true? What what might I discover? Then I find there is something, and and that something is deeply, deeply meaningful to that person that I'm listening to. The listening um, is is such a critical step in the in the manifestation or the articulation because it's already in there it's just that if you were to listen deeply it would come out that's that's what comes to mind and and and, and that's different from uh, saying that whatever this person is standing for sucks like I'm, I'm all of us have make mistakes right i'm not saying that there's no space for criticism of course we we need feedback loops if something's not working people need to you know have Laws in society; we, you know, there are consequences to our actions. All of that has, has have their place, but deeply understanding a human being has a it, it's a it's a conversation at a different level. It, it's sort of like this: that you can you can forgive a murderer and still send them to prison, right? <laughs> there, there is a it, it's sort of like that: that you 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 connect with the um, with the sacredness of every human being. And they're sacred because they're alive. You know, I have a Native American friend who brought this home to me that in that in, uh, in the Native American communities, they um, you know and some of them they they struggle because of all the stuff that's happened to them. They they get into cycles of violence and and, and they haven't had role models. So one of them was in a you know I, I want to be generalizing in a broad way. But let me stick to a specific story. One, one person had done some, something pretty egregious and was on death row. And, and on the day of the execution, the Native American community came and played their drums so he could hear it and know that he was ca- cared for. And, uh, before he, he was executed and just before the execution, he, he sent a message back saying he heard the drums and he knows he was cared for. And that's quite different from saying, spare him, or he shouldn't get the consequences of his actions. They, they weren't saying that; they were saying, "No, we just want you to know that you mattered." Now, so society, legal consequences—they're all they all have their place. But there's something even beyond that, and, and it's not like giving everybody a jail free card here. It's it's really that you're honoring your own aliveness when you honor the other person's aliveness. That's what this conversation is about.
0: Mm. and i think that's very important trying to understand where people are coming from because then that's how we will end up finding the solutions not just externally but internally someone might be seeing Mm. something within you that may need addressing or if you corrected it it might help you significantly on your journey but if you're not even willing to listen to the criticism how are you able to create a better you uh kind of going back to the 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 critic of the engineering you know i mean as an engineer you could easily say you don't really know what i'm doing so i don't have to listen to anything you say but yeah but you're like you know what you might be seeing something that i'm not because you are outside of my field because Mm. you are not in the box you're thinking outside of the box even though you might be wrong these nine times you know what that one time i actually see the merit (laughs) what you're saying and when we talk about the value of uh work and how work is viewed i found that very interesting you brought that up as well because um i happen to be part of generation x and i'm in this weird like i grew up pre-internet but i also was able to experience the internet um i'm in between the boomer generation the gen z generation and so you'll have the Boomer generation talk about the Gen Z and being like they're lazy uh, they 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 don't value work, they don't have a good work ethic they <laughs> they're not passionate about what they do, and then you have the Gen Z saying, "Well, we saw you guys basically work yourselves to death, and then in the twilight of your life, you're now able to enjoy the fruits of your labor, but you kind of waste not wasted but you kind of spent you know 30 35 40 years basically working for what now you are you might be one of those people um that i mentioned earlier in hospice having regrets that you wish you hadn't worked so much and so gen z's over here like you know maybe why do i need to work so hard and boomers are like why aren't you working hard enough but yet If they came together and actually listened to each other, perhaps there would be some kind of balance. Perhaps they can find a solution that works best for, you know, individual people. And of course, there will always be a spectrum of those that, you know, I I know someone, for example, that, uh, you know, they they will work a job for about a month and then they'll (laughs) find another job and that's what they like to do. They don't like to stay put. Mm -hmm. That's, they enjoy that. You know a boomer might look at that and be like that that is anathema that is <laughs> I can't even imagine that, but they they like that you know they that is their life that is the value system that they placed upon their life to for time you know time and everything um, I might be more inclined to have more stability, a career i I like the idea of a retirement and and, and all that uh, financial stability, whatever it all comes back to your value system and what you actually value um and also a great thing that you brought up uh uh, was the characterization when you're talking about you're an optimist um you know and that is also important to understand you know what are your characteristics let's look not so much on the outside or blame someone for something going on within us what are our faults what are our weaknesses it's almost like you're a character in, in, a, in the story. That is your life, and and so based on reading a book, you can kind of have an idea of like if you saw yourself as a character in a book, what is that character likely to do? You know, what is that what is that character likely to do? And so we're starting to get into the meat of the book. Um, but what I loved that you did on page twenty one is you broke down the constructs of the book. You broke down the patterns of the book, where basically you're telling people what to expect as they engage with each chapter. Um, you're you're basically telling them like, listen, you're, you're going to have a personal story. You're going to have some core ideas. You're going to have um, some follow-up in this regard. You're going to have, we're gonna make sure that we stick Uh, stay away from um, certain concepts like you you were very clean in the outline and I love I love that you set the stage it's almost like you know we're about to have a meal you set the table (laughs) all the forks and the plates and everything are in their rightful place so when someone walks in be like okay this is I see the salad fork I can expect salad I see a soup spoon I can expect expects a spoon. And so I really appreciate that as someone who loves organization as well, because you're, you're uh, assuring the reader that, listen, this is a guide. I'm not going to just throw a bunch of concepts. I'm not going to just preach to you. I am going to guide you step by step through this book. What, what inspired that for you to, to, to set the stage in this manner?
2: Well, it's a it's a really good question. When I started out writing the, this final version of the book, I've I've been very influenced by the patterns movement in in computer science and in architecture. And uh, I asked myself what what are the patterns? And and in a sense, if you think about it, right? So so I'm not sure I would use the word guide necessarily because who knows? Books are you know people will just open up some part of the book. And and enjoy a little story, and that's totally fine. That's a good. Point. And and maybe that'll draw them into the book, and maybe they will rewind and read something. But if you look at uh, some of the books that, that have stood the test of time, I don't know if this book will stand the test of time. That's a different question. But I I really liked. I was inspired by Bruce Lee's uh, Game of Death. I think the movie that came out way after you know after his death. And he had layers upon layers, and he had a pattern language to his filmmaking. And you could see those patterns. Like if you watch the film, I watched it as a kid. Of course, I didn't see any of those patterns. But then as I saw it after growing up, I, I, I'm the kind of person who enjoys the documentary and the making of the work just as much as the work itself. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, he thought about this, you know, levels of fights and this and that. So that was so cool. And, and that is what allowed him to create this canvas. And, and similarly, if you look at, you know, if you look at the core theme of this book, I'm not giving up on distinctions. There, there are enough people who will tell you, you are a prisoner because of distinctions. Stop making distinctions. That's not this book. This book is saying, no, I accept that I'm a prisoner, but I want to make distinctions because if you don't make distinctions, there is no, nothing to create. The very fact that you are a creator, it means you have to engage with dis- distinctions. And so how do you want to engage? And And if you look at a classical form, anything that we appreciate in life, say music, right? Or say dance, classical dance. If the dancer says, I refuse to dance in this way, I will dance any which way I want. Sure you can, but then it's not that particular classical dance anymore, right? So if you wanted to to uh, to have a form, you have to follow certain specific rules so people can even call it a dance. You know, I can't sit here in my chair talking to you and not move and say, oh, I'm dancing. You no, you're not. So, you, you didn't even get up. You didn't move your leg. You shake your leg. Nothing, right? right. So, so, there are certain rules around if you want to call it a dance, you got to do at least some motion. And then if it's a particular kind of dance, let's say the Indian classical dance called Bharatanatyam, then you have to dance in a very particular way. Otherwise, it's not Bharatanatyam. And that's not a bad thing. It's that these rules become the creative canvas in which you are going to tell your story. And that is where the feeling will transmit. But if you have not accepted any rules, you're not even there to think about how you're going to transmit the feeling. So so patterns and these limitations It was very important to me at the start of the book to think about what limitations I'm going to accept because they're not limitations. They are my creative palette. That's where these rules come from. And and so I had decided very intentionally that this is not going to be a book about monastic life because there are many people better than me, more qualified than me, who have written about it. This is not a book that's telling you to become a monk. So My my uh, learning, this is a counterculture book, so the learning from each chapter is coming not from monastic traditions, it's the opposite. It's coming from accounting traditions of your present-day materialism. And I am here to show a very startling thing that what you thought was materialistic, if you just look carefully enough, it isn't materialistic. It is actually deeply spiritual. And I'm here to show every twist and turn Great wisdom deriving from what you're already doing, and that's a different kind of book, and I had to do it very intentionally because if I now cheat and sneak in monastic wisdom then i can't I can't give you that message, so that was a very fundamental rule that yes these the spiritual traditions, the monastic traditions can pose certain questions for us, but the answers will come from materialism, and because I don't believe materialism is. Wicked or anything of that sort. I just feel that if you look deep enough, you will find it supports the same grain of the wisdom traditions. It's just that we haven't looked in that way.
0: Hmm. I, I love, I love that. I love that you that you put all that thought into it to make sure that your message comes across in the best way possible. Um, and, you know, and and one thing that um I also noticed um in the when you were coming up with the structure of the book um you have a lot of um it's basically like an outline but then you get to one last part where it's a little more broad Um, on page 22 pattern six the anti-hero the anti-hero will be a big part of this book you say this could be an individual or an organization that has some gray in it we'll learn from people who are easy to judge. And our lessons will emerge by suspending our judgment, creating a little space in our heart, and then accepting what is being offered. I thought this—I this, thought this was very interesting, and the, this book is very timely because it seems we are in a space now in the world in which, especially uh, when it comes uh, in America, in which everyone essentially becomes an antihero. Uh, we are—we are the hero in our mind but we are an enemy to another and so Mm. we have this strange anti-hero label kind of placed upon us in which it's like we should be offered some grace for what we are doing we think we are doing the right thing but at the same time to someone else we're doing a horrible thing (laughs) and so i actually think that makes the book very timely because it's teaching us that listen we we are all going through a similar journey. We're all trying to understand one another. We're trying to understand ourselves and um, we're trying to work with the world that has been given upon us to uh, you know find our full potential and uh An example that you gave is is I recognized immediately as a fan of anime um, i I watched Varuni Kenshin uh growing up so. Mm. You mentioned uh, the Japanese anime hero, uh, the Botosai, on uh, page 23. So the the Japanese anime hero, Botosai is a classic example. The story goes that this young man was trained to be a master swordsman who knew one thing really well, how to kill people, which I love this example because, I mean, <laughs> most people in the world would agree killing is bad. So, When he came of age and realized that he had been exploited to take many human lives, his spirit rebelled against taking life. And essentially you end up going a little later that he altered his sword so that the blunt side is uh, facing out. So he essentially knocked out his his opponents, but he's still a master swordsman. I thought thought that was very interesting because even people that find themselves... um, in a different station in life. So say you were at a job that you've been there for 20 years. This is your career. You've you've built your life around it. You've moved your house near this job. Your friends are in this job. You might think to yourself, I'm stuck. My, My whole foundation is rooted in this career. So even though I am hearing what you have to say in this book, I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck. I can't begin my hero's journey. And essentially, through the lens of the anti-hero and the examples that you give throughout this book, you help the reader to realize that that is not true. And, and we're going to be going into some of those examples. Uh, but essentially, you let them know that even in something, like you find yourself in an organization, uh, you give an example of the, the plastic, uh, you find yourself in an organization that may be uh, trying to think of the right word for it. Uh, it may not be great on the outside looking in from a public standpoint. You can still find little things within that organization, little changes that you can make uh, in order to make your situation better, to make your job more fulfilling and bring up that level of uh, happiness and passion um you say in uh, page 24 how might you within the narrow construct of your workplace find the depth of your truth and aliveness uh do do you want to speak a little bit more about that truth and aliveness in the workplace um where do do you have um, an an anecdote or a personal example of when you first realized that you can find that truth and aliveness in the workplace?
2: Yes, it's and so. So there's a lot of stories coming up, right? I need, uh, on 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 those anecdotes, <laughs> right, right. But uh, and, but but I, I feel like it's it, it's not. Uh, a one single story it's just the arc of it all that feeling so i feel very grateful that you know so let me tell you give you one story so when i finished my phd right my mom was visiting my mom and dad and um so my mom asked me and my mother by the way has a master's in philosophy so she is um you know there are no easy arguments at home my dad's a lawyer my mom's a philosopher and Oh my! <laughs> the arguments go deep in the family. Oh my! My sister is a lawyer too. So, 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 we, the, my mom asked me, "So, what exactly was your PhD on?" So then I explained to her mom it was about values, like values. Okay, and uh, and then um, my first uh, paying job right after that was at this uh, nonprofit, and I was I was basically applying my research, and she's like. Somebody's paying you for this? And, and he said, Yeah, they are. I said, it just boggled her mind. It's like really, why would anybody pay for values? Is that something's not right not computing in the world view that she had? Because uh, that's not the that's not something you 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 know, she heard about in her generation, or at least you don't open the newspaper and hear people in, in business talking about values. And so, uh, you know, and, and it's not just nonprofit. Like I've, I've ever since then continued this work in all kinds of contexts. So, so that to me is a blessing that that's, Hey, I, I feel very alive because there's no other way to be for me. And, and at, at the same time, I've not tried to run away. And, and a lot of people, you know, I've, I've had friends who like, they, they can't work in a business because they find it doesn't agree with whatever worldview they have. I find that uh, I share a lot of the, the wisdom tradition principles, but I find that if you were to just give a little bit of space to the business, to to that construct, because that is the dominant construct of our life. If you look at it before, we used to have trades, right? We had carpenters, farmers, we still have them. But in a sense, the dominant space when people graduate is to go to some kind of a business. Even if you're a farmer, You're incorporating as a business. So at some level, that is the space where we find ourselves when we become self-aware or become aware of our life and ourselves as a person. And so that's where most people feel trapped that, oh, why am I here? And how can I do something more meaningful? And, And that speaks to me that, hey, if you were feeling alive, you wouldn't be asking this question. And what can we do to help you come alive? So these, these patterns that we talked about earlier is like, I can just, I mean, there, there are a lot of good pieces of work where people have, have helped and have given guidance on how do you unlock more capacity, more fun, blah, blah, blah. And, and I guess my book is, is a, is in that genre for sure. And it is a little bit different in the, in the sense that I'm not saying, um, how to how to transform business. That's not that's a pretty big question. I, I'm I'm only talking about one very, very specific thing, which is counting. That's the one narrow lens I'm taking. Because that's where I feel the generation, the creation begins. Everything ultimately is some variation of counting. And if I focus just on that, that is the tool of the materialist. That's the tool of the accountant. Nobody looks to the accountant for life guidance. Right. When was the last time you went to, <laughs> to your accountant and said, help me think about the, the grandness of life? No, we don't do that. <laughs> no. Right. And here I am saying, this is a counterculture story. What makes this art? Right. So when, so why write another book? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not interested in lectures. That's too boring. Like I couldn't read my own book if I did that. So what, what I wanted to write was what I felt would be art and art starts by accepting very specific rules, which we talked about. If you don't accept those rules, you cannot create art because it's not art. Like Mozart is sounding like Beethoven, then he wouldn't be Mozart. Like you had to have a specific um set of rules. So so this was my rule. Like I'm gonna focus it on counting and the material world and things that everybody looks down upon. And I'm I'm gonna see there, dive deep. And see if it's truly materialistic. And no, what I'm finding is it's actually deeply philosophical. It's, it's actually more philosophical than anyone has imagined. It's, it's unbelievable. It's like, wow, if you were to just marvel at this, this is amazing. I, I'm, I'm living in a, I'm living a blessed life. There's nothing so crushing about this. It's just my eyes that need changing. And, and that gives us hope because it's not that easy to change your external context. But if you can change your eyes, suddenly you see differently, you create different experiences for yourself. And suddenly the world, the external world starts to reflect that. And that's within reach. That's, so that's what I'd say. I mean, that, that's what, you know, it's not a particular story as such. It's, it's, it's just every story is really about that, that, that I, I feel very blessed. To see the same situation in a different way, in 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 a in a sacred way that there is nothing mundane. Our conversation right now is not mundane. It's what a wonderful way (laughs) to uh, to begin a a Sunday morning, right? Talking about the deepest things of the universe, right? This is the biggest existential question our ancestors, any anybody's ancestors, would ever have had since the beginning of time how wonderful to get the opportunity to reflect on it together.
0: Yes, I agree. It's a, it's a great way. I know I, starting out this day, feeling inspired myself, making me think about different things in my own life and and questioning, are there areas in which, uh, you know, I need to bring um, up that truth and aliveness that I need to increase something that I need to live so that I do not have regrets. Um, You know, and that and that brings up an interesting point that I thought of as well on page twenty-six when you have the invaluable uh, poetry of sorts, and and we're gonna we're gonna go into each one because they start out the chapters with them, but one that really stood out to me in particular was number two. Uh, It says, "Time is the cause of all things," they said, but in that moment when it stopped the other day, the timeless cause knocked, and I love that because as someone who is a workaholic um i mean i will fight and <laughs> i will fight and scream and kick in order to keep on working and moving forward with my passion but there are times when you get really sick i'm not talking about the you know a cold or you know something you could fight through but like you're bedridden and it's rare but when it happens you know i might start out fighting against it like i need to do this i need to do but then eventually you kind of settle into it you, you know you might mm-hmm. be watching a you know american ninja warrior marathon or something mundane and whatever and, you, and then you realize like wow the world is still going it's still moving on <laughs> <laughs> yes. the, you know yes. everything is still moving on everyone is okay the, the work is okay. It could actually wait a little bit. And um, I'm almost afraid to admit in this moment, but I'm kind of enjoying this. And I try my best to take that with me when I'm feeling healthy. Like, you know, it's okay to take a moment. It's okay to proverbially, I perver- cannot say the word, essentially smell. stop and smell the roses. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that those valuable nuggets of wisdom um, that you have throughout the book, I am also very much looking forward to discussing with you as well. Um, Again, I'm not going to go through each of these points right here, because we're going to be going into them in more depth soon. Um, But believe it or not, any um, listeners... That was just the preface. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That
2: was just yes. the preface. Um, I was gonna say, yeah. I was like, "Hey, is, are you gonna get the first chapter done?" I think I'm out of steam here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, so
0: <laughs> so um, yeah. we're we're going we're going to pause uh, right there, and then um, please join us right after for uh chapter zero the zero and i want to thank you so much uh for having this wonderful discussion with you today
2: thank you julius